You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. This month's journal is a special issue, highlighting frontotemporal dementia and features a paper looking into the problem of confusing the behavioural variant of the condition with major depressive disorder. 50% of BVFTD patients received a psychiatric diagnosis prior to the BVFTD1, and in these 50%, 60% of these patients were first diagnosed as major depressive disorder. That was Maxime Batou, a neuropsychologist at Paris-Sorbonne University. More of his work on the power of using the social, emotion and cognition assessment later. April's special issue also shines a spotlight on amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So Martin Turner, consultant neurologist at Oxford University Nuffield Department of Clinical Neuroscience, told me about the first tractography work in the disease. Slightly sort of humbling, really, that 50 years ago, uh, people were, uh, like Marion Smith, were kind of making these discoveries and just realising the advance that we could do it non-invasively now. But firstly, corticobasal syndrome. There are diagnostic criteria for the condition around, but none are well established. John Hodges from Neuroscience Research Australia has applied and compared what we have at the moment, and he told editor Matthew Kiernan what he found. Well, for this month's editor's choice, we're very pleased to have Professor John Hodges talking about his study on diagnostic criteria for corticobasal syndrome. So, good evening, John. Oh, hello, Matthew. Perhaps you could fill us in a little bit about the background in terms of coming up with this study and what you were really trying to achieve through it. I mean, one of the problems we have in neurology is that many of our diagnoses are clinical syndromic diagnoses, and we don't have access to pathological confirmation of the diagnosis. And people apply criteria or supposedly apply criteria for different disorders, uh, whether it's Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, corticobasal syndrome, and trot these out. But on the whole, there's rather little attempt to validate and compare. So I've been interested in um, corticobasal syndrome, as we call it now, for a number of years, particularly as we've begun to realize how variable the pathology is when people die and that the patterns and profile of of clinical uh, presentations can be quite different. So we decided to have a look at all the patients who'd presented to uh, a busy uh, clinic in Cambridge. And we were fortunate enough to have been able to follow up nearly all of these patients So what we wanted to do was really look at the clinical criteria that have been used by three major groups working in the area and uh, simply compare them to begin with and then to see how applicable they were to to this group of patients. We looked at the criteria that have been used by the uh, Toronto group, uh, by the Mayo group, and that we ourselves had uh, used in Cambridge. And we took all of the patients, we looked at how many would fulfill the criteria when they first presented, um, how many would fulfill the criteria um, a few years later, and uh, how common are some of the 
signs that are regarded as very classic of corticobasal syndrome-like alien uh, limb phenomena. Then we saw whether some modifications to the criteria would help, particularly in the earlier stages. And the real point of this is to have some standardization of criteria um, that one can compare systematically and then to look at things like rates of different pathology and perhaps to use these criteria as drug studies start to become available. So, so from your sort of clinical perspective, what do you see as the key sort of features that would make you suspect the diagnosis in, in the first instance? Yes. Well, I think the, from our perspective, um, corticobasal syndrome started as a very uh, movement disorder defined condition with uh, Parkinsonism and asymmetric apraxia. Um, and emphasize some of the features like alien hand, uh, which are actually pretty unusual in, even in the advanced stages. And, and one of the key findings from this study is the prominence of cognitive symptoms early on, particularly uh, language difficulties, word finding problems, speech difficulty, and writing and spelling problems. So I think until now, people have sort of tended to be thinking, oh, well, it must be something else if they've got these cognitive features. And in a high proportion of patients, the cognitive and language features dominate. That's what the people, the patients come along to the clinic complaining of. And the apraxia and Parkinsonism are picked up on examination. Apraxia doesn't have to be the presenting symptom. That's one of the, you know, one of the important take-home messages. And, and in terms of that, then, you mentioned writing difficulties, and, and you have mentioned limb apraxia. Are you saying the writing difficulties are related to the apraxia, or is that related more to the cognitive? Well, that's very interesting, and that, that goes beyond this paper a bit. From my own experience over the years seeing these patients, they complain of difficulty with uh, writing, but the difficulty isn't just manipulating the pen and forming the letters. They've actually got a spelling disorder as well. And, and the areas of the brain that are related to hand manipulation and the, the praxic aspects of writing and the more cognitive aspects of writing and spelling are fairly closely related. And so I think that's one of the things that more general and um, movement disorder neurologists may not think of. Now, having established these uh, diagnostic criteria, what are your plans in terms of longitudinal studies and then what do you think would be a good approach in terms of management? Yeah, well, it's clear that the pathology um, underlying corticobasal syndrome which is why the, the terminology has shifted from corticobasal degeneration to CBS, because the original papers in the sort of 60s and 70s, which came out of movement disorder clinics, talked about it as having a very specific pathology, but it's become clear that 
quite a high percentage have Alzheimer's disease, some have PSP pathology, some have the classic sort of tau-positive corticobasal degeneration. So one of the important things I think now is to see whether you know there are nuances to these criteria that separate out the Alzheimer's from the tau um, longitudinally. So, so based on your findings, do you think that we should give equal weight to the movement disorder criteria and the cognitive symptoms? Or do you really think that maybe the cognitive symptoms are predominant? Well, what we proposed in the paper, we proposed mandatory criteria, which were basically that it's a gradually progressive disorder. And then we had major criteria, which were basically akinetic rigid syndrome, limb apraxia, and cognitive dysfunction, and that could be speech and language or executive function. And to make a diagnosis, you should have uh, two of those three uh, features. An interesting issue is whether perhaps the Alzheimer patients all have the cognitive um, features to begin with. Maybe some of the non-Alzheimer cases have the other two, but not the cognitive right from the beginning. So we've sort of broadened the criteria. I think, you know, there's a general point about uh, neurodegenerative diseases and the, the situation we're in at the moment. You know, we very much come from a, a medical perspective that we can diagnose in life based on a cluster of symptoms and signs, a pathological entity, and then um, direct therapy based on that pathological entity. Um, there's a problem you know, in neurodegenerative diseases that all the syndromes that we diagnose, uh, when we say somebody has Parkinson's disease or even motor neuron disease or, and definitely you know, FTD and corticobasal, there are a range of pathologies now that we know can cause each of those syndromes, a range of pathologies and, and a wide range of different gene defects. And so one of the great challenges is sort of going between the clinical syndrome, the pathology and the genetics. We've got to have greater clarity about the definitions of the clinical syndromes so I've been very much involved over the last few years in improving diagnostic criteria for the, the different forms of frontotemporal dementia, the, the behavioral variant, the forms of progressive aphasia, semantic dementia. And so this work on corticobasal syndrome really fits into that broader picture of getting better criteria so we all know what we're talking about then trying to relate the pathology to clinical criteria and getting better in vivo measures, biomarkers, if you like, of underlying pathology in the brain. I think it's really a classic disease in terms of its evolution. As you said, like when I was came across it first, it was very much in the movement disorder sphere. Yeah. The cognitive input was not really properly appreciated. Yeah. And that is certainly something that has come to the fore over recent years, particularly through your work. 
And in a way, would you would you claim corticobasal degeneration more as in the realms of frontotemporal dementia as opposed to more a classic sort of movement disorder, a classic yes. rigid syndrome? Another very important aspect is the the impact of the disease on the patient and the families. The cognitive dysfunction, you know, it's bad enough having difficulty walking and a tendency to falls and difficulty with hand control. But these patients also have, almost universally, by the time the disease has progressed a bit, major cognitive problems, which overlap very considerably with the syndromes that you see in frontotemporal dementia. So it's really part of the broader rubric of frontotemporal dementia with some added uh, motor disorder, I would see it as, and I, I would argue that the patients are best sort of uh, managed in a way in a, in a cognitively oriented setting with nurses and staff that understand the cognitive aspects. Well, John, it's really a fascinating study, and it's also been highlighted with an editorial commentary from Rabinovici and Miller, discussing again the overlap between movement disorders and cognitive dysfunction in, in this neurological disorder. So thanks for giving us your insights. Great pleasure to do so. And now, a look back on tractography. We're going back to 1957 with this month's impact commentary, revisiting the first tractography study in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. The research was done by Dr. Marion Smith, but as she died in 1998, it's Martin Turner, a consultant neurologist at the University of Oxford, who's looking back at her work. And he's on the line now. So good morning, Martin. Hello. First of all, could you tell me a bit about Marion Smith and what led up to her doing this work? Well, I, I didn't know Marion Smith personally, unfortunately, but uh, I, I know other people that did. And she was regarded as a very driven and dedicated person, very interested in all aspects of neuropathology. Um, and as well as her insights into motor neuron disease, she studied a number of other important aspects of just normal human anatomy, um, working with other people like uh, Peter Nathan on the corticospinal tracts, for example. And she worked mainly at the National Hospital for Neurology at Queen Square in London um, with a general sort of training in, in neuropathology. For those of us that don't have a clear idea, could you describe tritography and, and how it's changed over the last 50 years? Yeah, well, I think the important thing is that I've uh, used the term tractography. Uh, it wouldn't have existed in 1957. Um, tractography is, is a term that we use to describe what we do with the imaging, which we'll talk about later. But um, what she was doing was, was very standard, uh, although extremely skilled neuropathology work, looking at the, the white matter tracts or pathways uh, within the brains of patients with motor neuron disease. So this would have involved... Uh, painstakingly removing the tissue from people who donated that after their death and then fixing the tissue, that's uh, adding special chemicals to make it uh, so that you can cut very thin slices and study it and then staining each of those slices with various different stains to look at the different pathways and the different cells and of course putting all that together in thin slices and then making sense of it in a, in a three-dimensional way uh, was all just done in people's heads really um, and that's all the more remarkable. And actually sort of counting uh, the loss of, of neurons and 
being sure where you are at each stage when you're looking down the microscope is, is really a, a very skilled um, specialty. And, and what about now? How has the technique progressed? What, how would you go about doing this type of thing now? Well, in many ways, a lot of what's done in neuropathology now is, is very much the same. There's a, a sort of world shortage of neuropathologists, um, but uh, what they do at a fundamental level hasn't really changed. There's a lot more use of immunological uh, stains, so looking at the tissue with markers that are bound to antibodies. So you, you find the target that you want to look at, you raise an antibody to that target and then attach something that's coloured and then you can, it will appear on the stain and you know that what you're looking at is, is the target that you wanted. So there's a lot more of that sort of um, neuropathology that's going on, but fundamentally taking the tissue, um, fixing it and, uh, and staining it, those sort of techniques uh, haven't changed a great deal. Beside the, the technique, what were the clinical discoveries that Marion made? Were there any revelations here? Well, I think that the fundamental thing here was that people really hadn't considered that the uh, motor neuron disease was, uh, was a brain disorder in any great depth. Certainly, if, if you go back to the literature, even at Charcot's time at the end of the 1800s, there were, there were hints that uh, the brain was involved uh, in the sense of the motor cortex. And in fact, now that we, we link motor neuron disease a lot more with frontotemporal dementia, it's possible to look at the literature and see that people were already realizing that there might be, in some cases, a slightly wider involvement of the brain, but not really systematically studying that. And so this was, I think, one of the first studies to recognize that there were lots and lots of different tracts involved, not just the, simply the motor tracts, that there were some deep brain structures, and also mapping the extent of the involvement. Were they more involved at the top of the brain or in the middle of the brain? And uh, that, that really was a complete uh, revelation at the time. Hmm. And you write in the commentary that in another paper, Marion predicted the direction that ALS research would go. Could you tell me a bit more about this? She was recognising, I think something that, that I and others certainly recognise now, is that everything that we do in understanding this disease has to come back to what we can actually see in the tissue. Now, of course, there is a major disadvantage that the tissue is at the, uh, by definition, the end stage of the disease. But it's, it's really saying that what, what you're seeing uh, under the microscope is likely to reflect some of the functional changes that you're seeing during the course of the disease. So the fact that the disease starts in a, in a focus and spreads. And other people have, uh, have done work in the modern age trying to, to do exactly that. So looking at how what you see in life in the patient and then trying to reflect that much more systematically with what you see in the post-mortem tissue. People like John Ravitz are, are sort of leading the way on that. And finally, what made you want to, to write about this paper? What was it that is, is meaningful to you? Well, what I, uh, my own research involves using the MRI scanner uh, to look at the brains of patients with motor neuron disease. And when I first started in research, it was a, a surprise to me that the brain would be particularly interesting. And then my supervisor at the time, Nigel Lee, gave me this paper to read by Marion Smith. And then I realized that what I'm doing at the moment is, is no different from what she was doing, but doing it in a non-invasive way and doing it in patients when they're alive and actually mapping out the tracts 
And one particular finding that we found, uh, which were changes in the corpus callosum, we were initially a bit surprised about, and it was only when I went to her paper and saw that the images that we'd created were not at all uh, dissimilar to hers, in fact, uh, virtually identical. Mm. And it made me realise that uh, we were on to the right thing, but also a slight, slightly sort of humbling, really, that 50 years ago uh, people were, uh, like Marion Smith, were kind of making these discoveries um, and just realising the advance that we could do it non-invasively now. Fantastic. Well, Martin, thanks very much for, for coming on and telling us more about the paper. Not at all. Thanks very much. If you'd like to read Marion's full paper, it's alongside Martin's impact commentary online. And if you'd like to find out more about Martin's work, he was on this very podcast a few months ago, talking about whether exercise could have a direct effect on ALS. Links to all of those are on the podcast page. Currently, we have no definitive biomarkers for the behavioural variant of frontotemporal dementia, or BVFTP, so diagnosis depends on clinical criteria such as apathy or inertia, dietary changes or behavioural disinhibition. However, many of these cross over with psychiatric disorder symptoms and diagnosis of BVFTP remains a challenge. Maxime Bertou, who's a neuropsychologist at Sorbonne University in Paris, and colleagues have looked to see whether testing social and emotional cognition could improve diagnostic accuracy. And he joins me on the line now. So good afternoon. It's good to have you on the podcast, Maxime. Thank you to invite me. So first of all, how big a problem is the misdiagnosis of behavioural variant frontotemporal dementia? Well, as you said, the, the behavioural variant of uh, frontotemporal dementia, BVFTD, is a behavioural disease uh, subsequent to a prefrontal atrophy. And this disease is characterised by behaviour and personality changes. And these personality changes include some uh, pseudo-psychiatric or depressive symptoms like coldness, passivity, poor judgment, decreased empathy, loss of insight and, and loss of interest. And for the behavioural changes, uh, patients may exhibit a neglect in their personal hygiene, uh, inertia, a ability and irritability, and more generally, a systematic uh, apathy syndrome. So, so you can see that BVFTD patients have a few symptoms of depression or of major depressive disorder of, or MDD, uh, mainly because of the high prevalence of apathy in both conditions. That's why BVFTD is often misdiagnosed with depression. And recently, Joshua's study from Bruce Miller's team showed that 50% of BVFTD patients received a psychiatric diagnosis prior to the BVFTD1. And in these 50%, 60% of these patients were first diagnosed as major depressive disorder. So the problem of this misdiagnosis is real and is a serious clinical problem that, that as clinicians we, we encounter very often. Is there any way of diagnosing it other than these clinical characteristics? Can you, does brain imaging help you with that? The brain imaging can help, but uh, some depressed patients have also uh, an impairment, a dysfunction of blood perfusion in the ventromedial cortex. So it's not, it's not particularly specific to this disease. So at the moment, how is this type of frontotemporal dementia diagnosed? What, what tests are commonly used? Well, this is a, this is a problem because um, 
as you said, again, the deviated diagnosis is, is a clinical diagnosis based on a behavioral assessment and a cognitive examination. And the behavioral assessment may highlight many pseudo-depressive symptoms that could lead to a misdiagnosis, but the, the cognitive processes found to be impaired in BVFTD are the same found to be impaired in depressed patients uh, while also suffering from an impairment in executive functions with impairments in concept generation, inhibition, uh, attention, memory recall, uh, working memory, verbal fluency, etc. So the problem here comes from the classical neuropsychological test which may be not relevant for the, the early di diagnosis of BVFTD. So we, we need new tests, more sensitive and more specific to the, the prefrontal dysfunction involved in BVFTD. And during the last decade, some neuroscientists have been focused with the work on a new way to assess cognitive impairments in BVFTD by using tests uh, assessing uh, hot cognition, which mm. means tests uh, based on, on emotion or social cognition. And we knew that these tests were very relevant for the evaluation and diagnosis uh, of BVFTD. But no work has been done before to assess this relevancy for the differentiation between BVFTD and depressed patients. So the, the test of these that you looked at was called the, the Social Cognition and Emotional Assessment. Could you tell me a little bit more about that and how it actually um, assesses and, and diagnoses BVFTD? Yes, the, the social cognition and emotional assessment, or C, is, is born from this last study on hot cognition in BVFTD. We use a, a short version of the full path test from Stone and Brown Cohen to assess the theory of mind, which is a, a cognitive ability needed to infer what other people are thinking or feeling. We can save an emotional face recognition test based on Ekman faces to assess the recognition of emotion, which is also very, a very important cognitive process in social interaction. We then developed two reversal learning tests, uh, which assessed uh, the ability you have to adapt your behavior uh, after the unexpected changes of your environment. And, uh, and finally, we use uh, the Staxton scale to, to evaluate uh, apathy. And what could be surprising in, in relation to your question is that uh, only apathy scale is really and directly related to the BVFTD clinical criteria. Mm. But here, I think, uh, without any pretension, that we may be in advance of the clinical criteria for BVFTD diagnosis. And I say this because the uh, neuropsychological criterion from the new diagnosis criteria recently published doesn't include social and emotional cognition impairments yet. Right. However, I'm sure that it will come soon. You decided to, to assess the, the Social Cognition and Emotional Assessment, or SEA, and you used it on patients with moderate and early BVFTD, major depressive disorder, and also control patients. Oh, and I should also mention that you use um, a mini SEA test as well, so kind of a... Yeah. A, co a more concise version. So what did you find in terms of the, the differences in the, the SEA and mini SEA scores between, between these groups? We find um, similar results that in the, the last study on the, on the C with uh, Alzheimer patients published in, in last year. Uh, MDD patients showed subnormal scores compared to control subjects, while BVFTD patients show very low scores and with only the mini-C, which uh, is a reduced version uh, of the C, quicker to administrate and very specific, we find that uh, NDD patients are normal scores 
equal to those showed by control subjects, but that early and moderate BVAT patients showed very low scores again. So, in conclusion, we find that BVAT patients were severely impaired in social and emotional cognition, but that depressed patients had a normal profile in the mini-C, or just a subnormal profile in some tests of the C. So the mini-C is, uh, is able to discriminate two pathologic conditions. What about optimal cutoff scores? Were you able to determine these for the, the SEA and also the mini-SEA? Yes, we, we had a cutoff for, for the SEA uh, determined with a, with a previous study. And with this new study, the cutoff score is, is lower. For the mini-C, there is a stability between the two studies, but we, we are not working on, on statistical analysis uh, able to determine a unique cutoff score independent from the clinical question, uh, BVFTD versus Alzheimer disease or BVFTD versus depressed patients, etc. So with these promising results, what would you like to see happen now? Do you think clinicians need to be using the, the SEA more than they currently are? Uh, well, for me, the answer is definitely yes. Mm. Um, maybe not the C itself or not the, the mini C itself, but I'm sure that tests like theory of mind examination or uh, emotional recognition tests need to be more frequently used and, and will be used uh, even in non-specialized medical centers. Uh, BVFTD still is a rare disease, but uh, it's the first neurodegenerative disease below 65 years. And currently, many neurologists and neuropsychologists are using classical way to evaluate BVFTD, classical neuroimaging methods or classical cognitive tests. We know since uh, 50 years that standard imaging and standard cognitive methods uh, may not be informative or sensitive to the changes that appear in the early stage of BVFTD. We know that better methods are required for the evaluation or for the diagnosis of BVFTD and better methods to be sensitive to the frontal dysfunction occurring in BVFTD, and particularly those occurring in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And we know that this new heart cognition test like the C or the mini C, we know that they are sensitive to the ventromedial prefrontal dysfunction. So yes, we, we need to use these tests more than they, they currently are. And uh, fortunately, since uh, the online publication of, of this study in GNNP and uh, after a few communications in French specialized medical media, we had many demands from all over the country in France to obtain the C for clinical use and for research protocol also. So Fantastic. I think this is the, the beginning of maybe an evolution in clinical neuropsychology on, on BVFTD. Great. Well, yes, hopefully that will um, spread from France and we'll see the test in, in greater use. Well, Maxime, thanks very much for coming on. Good to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. That rounds it up for this month. Next time, we delve into research on depression and inflammation and idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.